0: CKUT
1: 90.3 FM.
0: Shalom, shalom. Sam, do you want to explain to folks where you are?
1: Sure. I'm in a suburb of Winnipeg, Manitoba, home of the bison, uh, or at least formerly home of the bison. I am out west with my partner to celebrate the holidays with her family.
0: I think we took an extra week that was not scheduled.
1: Yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is, is we weren't there for people when they needed us most. Um, as leaders of the War on Christmas. We didn't really provide during that seminal week, and so uh, we're both
0: very sorry about that. Yeah, I mean, you've been away. I've been working on a lot of stuff on my end. It's just a a busy time of year.
1: Do you think this is a good time to talk about the project that you're working on?
0: Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, me and Aaron Lakoff, who uh, longtime listeners will remember, was the former news coordinator for CKUT. We used to check in with him periodically on the show. And uh, we're both working on a radio documentary for the CBC, which is sort of like a state-funded version of NPR in Canada. And it's about the situation on the border here with refugees crossing into Canada since Trump got elected.
1: I hope that a portion of Trafe listeners can inundate CBC with uh, hits.
0: Yeah, yeah, the TRAF above. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but well, what have you been up to? Uh, how's the trip been so far?
1: I mean, it's almost comical how cold it is. We've mostly been inside and uh, like making some food and watching some movies and stuff.
0: That sounds very nice. Yes,
1: it's been nice to be with the family. But it's, just just to get a little serious for a second, we've been working on a few different episodes in the last couple of weeks and haven't really put together the episode on. The situation in Palestine right now, but we both want to extend our solidarity to folks who are resisting in all the different ways. And for folks who are listening, please stay tuned. We're going to have an episode out in the new year.
0: Yeah, since, since we last broadcast, our thoughts have been with Palestine. But for the time being, we wanted to share an interview that we did several months ago.
1: Yeah, the conversation is with Tom Pessa, who's a sociologist and activist based in Tel Aviv. We actually spoke to him about two years ago after he wrote an article for Jew School about an NGO based in the U.S. called Jimena.
0: And if you listen to the show and you're thinking I've never heard this interview, it's because unfortunately the audio was totally destroyed on, on, on the interview. We spent months trying to fix it and we, and we couldn't. Uh, so thankfully Tom made some time. We, we checked back in with him. And we talked about that interview, but we also talked about um, his activism since, which has largely focused on the mass disappearance and, and abduction of Yemeni and other uh, Mizrahi children who are taken away from from their families in Palestine.
1: This story also falls within the TRAF mandate because, as it turns out, a significant number of children ended up in North America.
0: Yeah, there are, there are uh, large amounts of Ashkenazi Jewish families in the United States and in Canada who actually adopted these children.
1: David, I think if we describe this conversation anymore, we might be dissuading
0: people rather than enticing them. That's a very good point. Um, so without further ado, here's our interview with Tom Pesach. It's
1: It's It's It's
2: Okay, my name is Tom Pesach, I'm Israeli, I'm 43, I'm an activist, Uh, I'm also an academic, I have a PhD in sociology, and I've been involved in a group called Amram, which works in Israel on the issue of the kidnappings of uh, Yemenite and other Mizrahi children, mainly in the 1950s, 1960s. And we're trying to bring that to public awareness in Israel and also in other countries, because other countries, as, as we'll talk about, other countries were also involved.
3: Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us a second time. We wanted to start off with an article that you wrote in the foreword, or should I say you co-wrote with uh, Racheli Said, um, about the refusal of WIZO, the Women's International Zionist Organization, to open their archives and provide resources around the question of Yemeni Mizrahi and and Balkan children and and this huge scandal that has plagued uh, the Israeli nation state for a long time. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction to that piece?
2: Yeah. So what happened was actually, I, it all started, I went to a unrelated protest in Tel Aviv, which was to do with violence against women in a few high profile cases of murders of women by their spouses. And WIZO is one of the biggest women's organizations in Israel. And their representatives came to this protest to speak. And as the WIZO representative was beginning to speak, people started booing her, and chanting, open up the archives. The point they were making was that she can't come and represent herself as representing women, representing them in a, in a feminist rally without mentioning her own organization's involvement in an issue which harmed a lot of Mizrahi women. And the point is, it isn't just an historical issue. It's something where they are perpetuating in the present. Yeah, actually, before
0: we talk more about the present moment, can we go back a bit to give people a bit of a background with the situation?
2: Mm -hmm. in the 1950s several thousand children, the the estimates are something like 70% of them were Yemenite and most of the rest came from Mizrahi families and a very small number came from Ashkenazi families something like 2-3% or I think these children were taken from their parents I mean there's all kinds of stories, sometimes they were taken from the parents in the street or in airports or in all sorts of other occasions but the most common scenario was that these will be children in absorption camps these are people who just recently immigrated and doctors in the absorption camp will tell them they need to take the child to the hospital or else the parents themselves took the child to the hospital for you know whatever normal reasons and within a few days they are called to the hospital and told that the child has died they are not shown a body and they're told the child has already been buried, and there's no details about what happened to the child. And sometimes the parents insist, and people call the police and push them out of the hospital. In some rare cases, the parents did manage to make a very big protest, and they refused to leave, and they threatened the staff, and so on. And then the children were returned to them. The same children that the staff had previously said had died were returned to the parents. And over the years, The parents began suspecting that the children hadn't really died. And since then, there have been several dozen adults who actually have been discovered in Ashkenazi families. These children were taken from the hospital and adopted, and the parents didn't actually tell them. Now, this was a process which we don't know. I mean, it was censored in Israel for many decades. The documents, a lot of them are still not available to the public. And we know within this process, WISO, the Women's uh, International Zionist Organization, was very central because they were active in, in issues to do with child care in Israel. They were connected to hospitals. So a lot of people have testimonies of going to WISO centers and picking up children for adoption, like you would pick up, you know, a puppy or something like that. There were loads of children there, and you could just choose and take them home. This didn't just happen once. This happened for decades, and there's evidence for this was quite well documented. It's very possible that there are documents in Wizo's possession which could enable children to find out who their parents are because a lot of people are looking, a lot of the parents are looking for children, a lot of the children are looking for parents and the state so far is refusing to release names. The official excuse is it's an issue of privacy. So Tom,
3: for, for listeners of the show who don't have a good sense of Israeli society, which I guess in some ways would be weird, but anyways... Um, Could you describe the context that led to migrants from Yemen
2: being in camps in Israel at this time? Okay, so first of all, you have, during that period, which is after the establishment of the state and during the 1950s, you have massive immigration of Jews from North Africa and the Middle East to Israel for a variety of reasons. Some of it has to do with more tensions with those countries as a result of the rise of Arab nationalism and the conflict with Zionism so Jews come to be seen as associated with the enemy and a lot of those countries support the Arab side in the 1948 war and then there's the pull factor which is the Zionist movement is more interested in Middle Eastern Jews at this point because previously they had been expecting a lot of Jews to immigrate from Europe that, that was the main area they were interested in and of course this is after the Holocaust So all those big, you know, areas where they expected millions of Jews to come create a Jewish majority in Palestine, uh, all those Jews have been murdered in the Holocaust. So now they are taking an interest in Middle Eastern Jews, and the interest becomes more and more instrumental. The state becomes sort of stronger and more organized, and it has very specific purposes that it needs people for. For example, a lot of the areas that Palestinian refugees were driven out of are now empty, and they want to settle Jews onto that land in order for Palestinians not to reoccupy it, because there's Palestinians trying to get back across the borders and reoccupy their land or, or till their fields and things like that. So the state wants to settle Jews in these areas which are usually quite remote, less good conditions, less good transportation, less good climate and so on. And it's easier to use Middle Eastern Jews for those purposes. A very clear demonstration that is in 1957 there's a new wave of immigration from Poland because at the time there's a wave of anti-semitism in Poland and we have actual discussions in the government of people saying you know Polish Jews we we can't just stick Polish Jews in in development towns We, we should put them in the center because they're not suitable for those conditions but Jews from the Middle East are sort of good material for placement in more remote areas and usually in these areas they'll set up one or two plants and Vocational schools should train people to work in those plants to become sort of working class Not particularly educated as opposed to a lot of Ashkenazim who ended up in the center now That's obviously a generalization that isn't to say that I mean for example My family is Mizrahi and we're Syrian and yet I grew up in Tel Aviv So that doesn't mean to say that you know every single Mizrahi person in the country and every single Ashkenazi person in the country fit exactly into that scheme but to a large extent that's been the internal stratification among Jews since the 1950s until now. Now, specifically towards uh, Yemenites, there's a lot of stereotypes. There are a lot of racist perceptions. Uh, they're darker skinned. There's a lot of pseudo-scientific racism. Eugenic theories are very popular in the 1950s. A lot of theories about how Mizrahi families neglect their children and it's unhealthy for the children to grow up in such families because they're unhygienic and they don't know how to treat children properly. And they're likely to get diseases and so on. So there's a nurse who was interviewed recently who admitted she was part of the kidnappings. And she said when they sent the children off, they actually had a little party. The the nurses were very happy that the children would be going to a good home because they were so convinced that keeping them within their original families would be bad for the children. So that's sort of the, the, the climate at the time that enabled the kidnappings as far as we know.
0: So in in reading through your work and many others on this topic, uh, I've noticed something that's consistently referenced is the relationship that developed with Ashkenazi Jewish families in America, many of which became adoptive families for these children. Yes. And I found it fairly difficult to find any details of that relationship and, and what was actually going on.
2: Well, it's hard to talk about. Everything we know about this case, almost everything we know is from the side of the parents who lost their children. We know much less about what happened to the children after they were taken from the parents because that was covered up So we only have little traces of information That people are trying to use to reconstruct what happened, but we we can't say we have a full picture until the state comes clean Or until organizations like WISO come clean. We can't say we have a full picture of what's going on. So we do have some testimonies for example imagine these immigration camps in the 1950s, these are very remote places. They're, you know, out of the way, poor. They're not like tourist destinations or something like that. And yet we know that a lot of tourists, some of them from North America, keep showing up in these camps or in hospitals and they go and meet children. We have all sorts of testimonies from nurses and people like that saying there were overtime the parents there. There's also other testimonies. There was one report in Haaretz. Haaretz did a series of reports about this issue in the 1990s, and there was a report about a ultra-Orthodox rabbi who was involved in some kind of smuggling scheme of children from Israel to the U.S. This was parents who were looking to adopt children after the Holocaust. So we have all sorts of like, little traces of information saying some of the children may have ended up in North America. But we don't actually have... You know very clear information. We know the children left, but we don't actually know where they arrived So we have a project now of translating some of the testimonies into English to create more discussion in North America in Canada Maybe in the US and for people to start asking around asking questions because that's what happened in Israel People started asking around and then suddenly someone remembered, you know, there was this story in our family several decades ago, and we we kept it quiet also one more thing I want to add is that a lot of times it's difficult for the Children to actually come out and talk about what happened because a lot of times the families were complicit in all sorts of ways the adoptive families and For the children to come out and talk about it is really making an accusation Against the families who have been with them for most of their lives Mm -hmm. and that's a very big step I mean that can create like a huge friction that can create like disconnect It's not necessarily so easy for them to reconnect to their biological parents whom they haven't seen for something like 60 years so we know of a lot of children, for example, who are connected to Amram, this association which is working on the issue, but they're not willing to actually come out publicly and talk about it. So the point is to generate some kind of discussion and sort of fish around and, and start asking these questions and we hope more people will be willing to, to come forward. So last time that we talked, we were talking about an exposé
0: that you had written for Jew School about an organization called Jemena, Jews Indigenous to the Middle East and North Africa. And I guess in, in talking about the relationship uh, that Mizrahi Jews have had with the Ashkenazi wing of the Zionist movement, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that piece and, and what led you to write it.
2: Well, I I studied in the U.S., and I noticed in the U.S. when I was studying there, Mizrahi were very, very underrepresented. And the main time when Mizrahi issues come up is through sort of pro-Israel propaganda. Their issues are supposed to cancel out Palestinian issues. So every time someone says a lot of Palestinians were driven out of Israel in 1948, somebody else will say a lot of Mizrahi Jews were driven out of Arab countries at the same time, and the two injustices are supposed to cancel each other out, and that serves the needs of Israel not to pay compensation to Palestinian refugees, that because Jews from the Middle East lost their property, therefore, that kind of balances out the the way that Palestinians lost their property, and that way, you know, we're, we're good now, we're even. And obviously that is a way that Israel is a shirking its responsibility towards Palestinians and b it's using Mizrahim by sort of offering their property uh, for its own purposes where, where this is just their private property. I mean Jews who were forced to leave Iraq without their property didn't Donate their property to neither Israel nor Iraq. I mean they deserve compensation for whatever they lost and the much of the, the Jewish community in Iraq was very wealthy so that that should be quite a size of a compensation. So you see a lot of that going on in the U.S. I, I was kind of curious because you don't see a lot of independent Mizrahi representation in the in the U.S. There's very few organizations. Today there's a small group of Jews of color and Mizrahim Mizrahi who are associated with Jewish Voice of Peace that I know. But at the time there was very, very little Mizrahi representation. And yet, you constantly saw this manipulation of Mizrahi history in, in the, um, for the purposes of of, of Israeli propaganda, of poor Israel propaganda. And I was curious about this. And in the end, I, I had this friend, Koichi Shireyanagi, who is Jewish, who worked in Jimena, and we were having a discussion about it on Facebook, and he said... Something like, you know, I work there, you know, I could tell you a lot more. So I thought, you know, this would be a good opportunity to to actually record and find out what happened because a lot of these organizations, what happens behind the scenes, it's very different from the facade they represent.
0: And, and for people who haven't read the piece, like we're going to link to it in, in the notes for this episode, but can you give people a rundown of what you learned through those conversations about the way that Jemena, which I think was sort of operating as the primary organization in North America, claiming to
2: represent Mizrahi Jews, correct? Exactly, yes, yes. It's certainly the best-funded organization, probably the most well-known organization. Basically, the, the point is that the organization, like, unfortunately, many mainstream Jewish organizations, is influenced very much by its donors. And the donors are most of them Ashkenazim. And not just any Ashkenazim, but they are conservative politically. So what happened was, for example, the person I interviewed was collecting testimonies from Mizrahim, about their life experiences, but those testimonies had to be edited in line with the politics of the organization. So on the one hand, any kind of criticism towards Israel was censored out. On the other hand, they were encouraged to repeat all sorts of propaganda lines in relation to Arab countries and sort of exaggerate, emphasize as much as possible persecution by Arab countries, which of course. Some of them were mistreated by Arab countries, but, but this was a deliberate attempt to sort of serve the interests of pro-Israel lobbying more than reflecting the authentic voices of the people he was interviewing. So in the end, he left this organization in protest after he felt he wasn't really authentically representing these communities. He was really representing the agenda of the, the donors.
3: Now, in the time since that article was published, I think it's been more than a year, have you heard from Jimena? Have you Twitter and or Facebooked with folks who represent that organization?
2: Well, we actually asked them for a, uh, a response. Uh, I thought it would be useful to ask them for a response so at the bottom of the article. If you scroll down, you see that they responded. One thing that I think has improved in some way was that at the time, one of the things that upset the, the person I interviewed was that they were in denial, actively denying... The fact that there were North African Jews who also victims of the Holocaust a lot of people don't know this But the Nazis occupied North Africa and in Tunisia and particularly in Libya hundreds of Jews died at the hands of the Nazis and even some Jews were actually Taken from there to Europe and died in concentration camps and this is sort of a lesser-known part of the Holocaust and a lot of the narrative of the Holocaust is Eurocentric unfortunately and at the time Jumena refused to discuss this one more example of their sort of oversight towards Mizrahi Jews who they claim to represent and it seems like in the time that has passed since then they've become at least in the aspects more flexible and they're more willing to to recognize that so that's that's one thing that has improved I don't have any indication that and i would be surprised actually if the organization suddenly became democratic and actually started representing I mean, I know a lot of Mizrahi activists, I don't know a lot of them would feel comfortable suddenly joining Jimena and and expect their voices to be represented, Uh, Mizrahi activists in the U.S.
0: Uh, So, Tom, if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing or the Yemeni-Mizrahi and and Balkan children affair, uh, how can they learn more, how can they tap into that work?
2: Well, we're working on the, the organization involved in Amram is working on an English website, which should go online soon, and there hopefully we'll be able to link to English articles. It's gradually getting more and more information is becoming available in English, there have been several useful articles. There's a very good article by uh, Shlomi Khatuka, who is the founder of Amram, which was translated by uh, 972 magazine, which really goes into it in in a lot of details and he exposes a lot of new materials uh avoid articles i mean the older articles say you know this is a conspiracy we don't really know people are just paranoid and so on and there's there's also some kind of older sort of negative coverage of this issue which ignores in, in a racist way frankly ignores the experiences of thousands of parents and ignores their testimonies and sort of makes them out to be sort of paranoid and imagining things that didn't happen uh so th- those kind of articles i would avoid but i think there's the more serious articles which have come out in in recent years about the issue
0: well, Tom, thanks again for taking the time to have a second conversation with us. I um, really appreciate all the work that you're doing out there. And uh, I look forward to sifting through all these pieces once the new website launches.
2: Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for sitting in a room
3: that has a closed window. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, So that was our interview with Tom Pessa. Again, many thanks to him for putting up with our technical difficulties and talking to us many times despite the time difference. If you're interested in reading any of the articles that we talked about in the interview, which I highly recommend you do, uh, we'll have links to all of them in the show notes for today's episode.
1: Something else that you can do in the days leading up to the Gregorian New Year is take out a compass, maybe your phone a compass and a calendar and um, see if our workshop dates correspond with a your location and b your availability see what you're doing (laughs) in short we have a brief two-day workshop in Ontario at the end of January we're talking in Waterloo on the 26th of January and in Toronto on the 28th of January We also have a workshop date in St. Paul, Minnesota, on February 9th. We're trying to arrange a few dates before and after in neighboring cities. Um, So if you're in any of those neighboring cities and would like to host, please let us know.
0: Yeah, as your uh, maybe the last chance before we uh, work this workshop into the ground.
1: (laughs) So if you are in or around any of these places, come check out our workshop on anti-Semitism. And before we go, and maybe this is me being infected by the social context that I'm living in, but I think at the end of this 365 days, we can once again thank everyone for listening and everyone who has participated in way to the Podcast. It is a really special project. I get a lot out of it. I'm really grateful that we're doing it and have been really excited by the conversations that it has brought on. So, thanks everyone for listening and for putting in effort and for engaging with some of the ideas that, that we've uh, put
0: up. The show for me too has been a really central thing in my life over the last few years. And that wouldn't be possible without you, Sam, and, and without everybody who's listening and contributing and challenging us and talking with us. Uh, so, thanks everybody. Ashane and Dunk. A uh, happy rest of 5778. <laughs> Trade Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CQT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the Giant Cross of Secularism on occupied Ganagahaga territory. Thanks, as always, to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design, to Kira Page, our social media consultant, to Cadence O'Neill, who designed TravePodcast.com, to Sack Syndrome and So Called for the music you heard in the episode, and Ariana Katz, the Trave staff rabbi. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Trafepodcast, T-R-E-Y-F, And send us any comments, suggestions, or hate mail to trafepodcast at (laughs) gmail.com.
3: So anyway, yeah. Can I can I actually ask an, uh, uh, a question about the nation state you're living in right now? Yes. What What is the level of enthusiasm vis-a-vis Halloween? Does it exist? In Israel?
2: No, yeah. it doesn't exist.
3: Okay, it doesn't exist at all. So it's purely a North American phenomenon?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have, I mean, there's other costume. Yeah, yeah, I know. But uh, we don't celebrate Halloween
3: at all, no. That's fascinating. Yeah, my, my father really pr- tried to prevent me from ever participating.
2: But why? I mean, it's not a Christian thing. It's just a secular thing, isn't it? I mean, does that have any kind of religious significance? I mean, I think
3: he always thought that it was religiously connected.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, I grew up in an Orthodox community in Toronto, and uh, Halloween was not permitted. It was just a- any holiday that wasn't Jewish, they were all kept at bay.
2: Wait, what about state holidays? Could they not celebrate uh, well, if you July get a, 4th?
0: Well, I mean, we were in Canada, so there wouldn't be July 4th. But uh, any celebration <laughs> any any celebration that was not a Jewish celebration were, were not. It was haram.
2: Yeah. I can understand that i mean that's like orthodox people in israel that sort yeah. of, would probably feel the same way
0: yeah it's like it would be a, a marker of assimilation
3: wait follow-up question so no europeans have any halloween it's purely north american
2: well i, I i'm not you know i know israel well i don't really know <laughs> you know france or britain as well as that
3: <laughs> oh no no i mean like i you're not we're not uh, putting this out there i'm just generally i was thinking about it out loud